I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against the accusations of the Jews, because, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now here on trial because of my hope and the promises made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. And I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that had shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had fallen to the ground, I, I, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness for the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified uh, by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and turned and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God And so I stand here and testify both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Uh, But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, 
most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. To him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I love, I would, yeah, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is not doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word, that you would give us insight into these passages, that you would apply them uh, to our lives, that the Holy Spirit would be present, and that we would uh, just feed on your word and and delight in you and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Some of you might know uh, the song um, that we sometimes sing. It's It's an old hymn. There's, it goes like this, and I, I won't sing it because you don't want me to sing a solo this morning, but it goes, There's a call comes ringing o'er the restless waves. Send the light, send the light. There are souls to rescue, there are souls to save. Send the light, send the light. Send the light, the blessed gospel light. Let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light and let its radiant beams light the world forevermore. We're in a passage this morning where that... That really is the emphasis of the passage. Jesus sends the light. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the one going out. The message about him is the one going out. But Jesus himself is also the sender of the light. Seeing that people would hear of his name. Seeing that people would would believe upon him. Lighting up their hearts and, and opening their eyes. Christ does this by using human beings, by using fellow Christians. God in His sovereignty, and we've been saying this numerous places in Acts, God in His sovereignty uses means. Meaning He uses individuals or events or circumstances or other things to accomplish His plans. He he uses means, mediators, if you would, ambassadors going out. And so Christ both is the light and the one sending the light. Christ, I guess, could sing the hymn, Send the Light. I'm sending the light, maybe he would, he would say. What we want to see in this passage this morning is that Jesus Christ is the hope and the light. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of scriptures and therefore is hope and he is light to the lost. Jesus is the only hope. Jesus is the only light. If we are going to bring people to hope, if we are going to bring people to the light, to bring them to understanding the Word of God, we need to bring them Jesus. There are a whole lot of things out there that people place their hopes in. There are a whole lot of things that people are looking for and they think will satisfy their hope. 
Even in this election season, you'll see people telling us we need to vote a certain way so that America can be saved. And that's all well and fine if we we want to see America go a certain direction. But the only true hope that we have is Jesus Christ. Nothing in man can bring us hope. By the same token, nothing among man can open our eyes and bring us the light of the truth. Jesus brings us hope and life. So first this morning, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the hope. And so Paul begins here laying out his testimony before Agrippa. You'll remember he's been under arrest. He was testifying before Felix. Felix kept him in jail uh, for two years. Festus became uh, the Roman commander, the Roman uh, tribune. And then Festus heard Paul talk and King Agrippa, who was one of the, the Herods of the Bible, comes up from Jerusalem and Festus says, I've got this guy, Herod, and I'd like you to hear what he says. I think he's innocent. I, I, I believe he's innocent, but, but you listen to him and tell me what you think I should do, which is why the passage ends with Agrippa saying, this man should have been set free. But Paul begins his testimony then. Paul, so they had gathered, uh, they had gathered, and Festus had introduced Agrippa last week, and so it says in verse 1, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hands and, and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. This is a pretty standard introduction to, to how you would do public speaking in the ancient world, particularly when you're speaking uh, before someone of great power. You would say something nice. You would say something um, uh, kind of to humble yourself and also just to give them credit. Uh, if you're giving a speech, you want to say, uh, I hope you'll be patient with me that this doesn't take up too much of your time. Uh, maybe I should begin my sermons that I hope you'll be patient with me as we unfold this uh, here today. But Paul uses then here in this passage twice. It says he's going to make a defense. It says in verse one, Paul stretched out his hand to make a defense. And then he actually says it in verse two. I'm going to make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. This is the same word that we've been bringing out a few times as well already in Acts. It's the same word that's used in 1 Peter 3.15, that we are always to be ready to give an answer, or we could translate it to make a defense. In other words, to say something about God and Jesus. And 1 Peter 3.15 says to give an answer for the hope that resides within us. We shouldn't be afraid to stand up and, and give an answer. And part of evangelizing is not only proclaiming the word of God, but, but giving an answer, making a defense of it. Now, it doesn't mean we take the word of God and we say, well, that's not really what I have to proclaim. I've got to defend it. Rather, we take the faith that we have that's grounded in the word of God, that's grounded in the reality of the resurrection, and we defend the truth. We say things like, how do we know this is true? How do we know we actually have hope? Well, let me explain it to you. Let me show you, as Paul will say later, with, with rational words. You can communicate the gospel. 
with clear thought and words. You have to communicate the gospel with clear thoughts and words. We're not, we're not calling people to just, you know, feel something inside of them and then, you know, abandon all thinking and just follow your, your heart or your feelings or your impulses. We're saying believe. Put your trust in this person. And he is real and he is hope. And let me explain to you why he is hope. So we see in this passage, as Paul calls Agrippa later on at the end, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets. It seems here that Paul is particularly glad he is before Agrippa because Agrippa understands elements of the word of God. Agrippa understands aspects of Judaism. It's, it's kind of like witnessing to somebody who has already grown up in the church. Have you ever encountered that? Someone who's they've grown up in the church, they know all the Sunday school lessons, and, and they've walked away from God, they're not a believer, and, and, but at least you can begin on some kind of common ground where you can say, you know, I know you know these Bible stories. I know you've heard some of these things before. Maybe even the person says, well, yeah, of course I, I believe in God. Well, of course I believe the Bible is the Word of God. But for whatever reason, they're not a believer. Well, Agrippa here is much like that. Paul says, I'm glad to say these things before you because you understand the controversies. I know that you believe the prophets, don't you? You take it to be the Word of God, I think is what Paul is saying. Agrippus has some knowledge of God's Word, some belief perhaps that the Bible is God's Word, and perhaps even some sort of hope that God will fulfill His Word. He's talking to someone who's been around Judaism. So Paul can come and say then, this hope that you look for, it's found only in Jesus. Something that's worth noting here, and and it's worth noting in all of uh, Paul's interactions that we've been looking at over the last few weeks is when Paul shares the faith, he's very winsome. He's not mean. He's not nasty. Um, he's almost he's, he's not jovial, but he's he's very lighthearted. And not that these things aren't serious, but he, but he talks to these people respectfully, and he talks to them in a way that's going to to win a hearing with them. He's not just you know. Um, you know, like buttering them up or emotionally manipulating them. But he is respectful. And, and you, you can almost sense here, Paul is just a, a delight to listen to. I'm sure Festus and Agrippa at times had listened to, to hardened criminals, angry people, you know. How dare you bring me in here and charge me with these things? I'm innocent. And Paul's just, hey guys, I'm... I'm glad to be here today. This is just a tremendous opportunity to talk to you. You know, maybe, maybe when you have opportunity to talk to your loved ones or coworkers, you know, or, or maybe someone approaches you and they, you know, I'm, 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 I hear you go to church and, and I have a question for you. And one way you can be winsome is just, wow, I, I really appreciate you coming to me. I, I know these things aren't easy to talk to. I, I know we don't. Uh, agree and believe some of the same things, but I really appreciate that you that you thought of me, that that were friendly enough that you could you could talk to me. Thank you very much. Be be winsome. 
as you share your faith. Be, be a delight to listen to. If, if people are going to hate you and, and despise what you're saying, let them despise you because you're bringing the truth. Let them not despise you for the way that you bring the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying there? The gospel will be offensive to the unbelieving person. But don't you be an extra offense. I've got to come in there with a chip on my shoulder because I'm standing up for the truth. Be winsome. Be winsome. Paul shares about his life then before he was saved. Look at verses 4 and 5. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known to all the Jews. And they have known for a long time, and if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul will, will say in Philippians chapter 3 that, that he had much confidence in the flesh, if the flesh was something that he could boast in. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a a persecutor of the church, a righteousness under the law, blameless, he says. In other words, what Paul is saying is, if you were to count up my human accomplishments, where I was in this religion, I was, I was at the top of the game. He wasn't just a guy that, that, that you know, once or twice a month he, he went to the Sabbath service in the synagogue. He wasn't just there every week sitting in the back. He was, he was on fire for this. He was zealous. He was passionate about it. It's part of what makes Paul's conversion so amazing. Verses 9, 10, 11 says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in, in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You remember how when Stephen was being stoned, Paul was there willing to hold the coats of the men doing it. I I wonder why Paul didn't jump in and do it himself. It's not because he didn't want to or he was weak-willed. But the whole idea of sitting there holding the coats is, hey, guys, you're, you're doing a great thing. Let me help you out. Let me, let me take your coats for you. I'll make sure they, they don't touch the ground. You, you go and do God's work. Paul was zealous. He says in verse 11, And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to the foreign cities by trying to, um, uh, by trying to get them to renounce Jesus as Messiah and Lord. Uh, Paul now sees that, that he is trying to get them to blaspheme. In, in other words, he says here, um, I lost my train of thought there, sorry. Uh, he says, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme with a raging fury against them. I persecuted them in foreign cities. The idea here is Paul says, I know what I was doing now is wrong. But look at the intensity with which he had done this. How much zeal do you have to have that you are willing to kill people for your cause? 
that you're willing to torture them and and convince them to blaspheme, to to turn against God. Of course, Paul at the time thinks he's, he's getting them to turn to God from something false, but now he understands that this was wrong. Paul says he, he had this raging fury. You know what I think of when I think of this? I think of those cartoons. You ever see those cartoons where the, the guy gets mad? And, and, and you know how he starts to blow smoke out of his nostrils? Uh, he says in, uh, it says in Acts 9-1 that Paul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And you know how those cartoons, they, they blow out the smoke from the nostrils. And then you know how like a, a thermometer gauge starts going up and they, they start turning really red. And when that thermometer gauge gets to the top, they have that like old steam whistle that just blows out. And it's like, because they're so angry. Paul had that kind of raging fury. He wasn't on the sidelines. He was in the thick of it, thinking he was fighting for God. Perhaps thinking he was like uh, some of the Maccabees who would go out and kill people because there were others abandoning God and the traditions. Uh, One of the Maccabees, Mattathias, said, Whoever is zealous for the law and maintain the covenant, let him follow me. And he took up a sword and went out. Perhaps thinking of a more biblical character, you think of uh, the priest uh, Phineas, In the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, when there were people uh, doing all kinds of sexual immorality, he actually picks up a spear and and kills someone because they're dishonoring God. And I'm sure Paul says, this is what I'm doing. I'm following God. I'm being zealous for him. I'm doing what my heroes have done. But Paul has come to to find out who God is. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made to, by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul really, in God opening his eyes, has, has come to understand that he is following the truth. That Christianity isn't something new, but it is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to His people. That the hope has been laid down years and decades and centuries before in the Old Testament. Paul's saying, I realized that I was the one that was off the rails. That I was the one who had walked down the wrong path. That I was the one who was blind. Because the hope that God had laid out is the hope that Jesus has now fulfilled. Notice it says in verse 8, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You could almost translate this, and I think it would be a fair translation to say, Why do you think it's unbelievable that God raises the dead? You think about this, in our day and age, we can understand why, why someone, particularly an atheist, particularly someone who believes in evolution and doesn't believe God exists, why they would think a resurrection is unbelievable. When's the last time you saw a dead person come out of the grave? We understand that the resurrection of Jesus is a unique event done by the power of God. It has never happened in all of history. But to a Jewish person 
who understands the power of God, who believes that, that God parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land. Why would this be unbelievable? They had prophets like Elijah who, and Elisha who were able to bring people back from the dead. They have the Word of God in Ezekiel. Ezekiel being told, prophesy to these dry bones and they will knit themselves back together. It's a prediction of the resurrection. Why would a person that knows their Bible, that believes their Bible, at least as they thought they did, why would they find the resurrection of the dead unbelievable, inconceivable, an incredible, bizarre fabrication, if you will? It shows how far they were from God, how blinded they were. Just as Jesus says to the people following him, the Pharisees in particular, you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. Do we know the scriptures? Do we know the power of God? That Jesus is our hope because God raised him from the dead. That his sacrifice accomplished something the forgiveness of our sins because He did not stay dead. He did not stay under that penalty. We would be without hope, Paul tells us, if there was no resurrection. We would be above all the most pitied, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We have hope in Jesus because Jesus' hope was laid down and predicted in the Scriptures and fulfilled in his resurrection. Notice Paul says in verse 22, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That's a model even for how we want to teach in the church, right? I'm saying nothing this morning except what you find in Scripture. Except what the Bible says. And if you're in a church and if we ever start uh, saying things that aren't in Scripture, first, you ought to confront us, and second, you ought to leave if it doesn't change. But imagine Paul standing before these Jewish people who think they know their Bibles, and Paul is saying, I'm teaching nothing new. I'm just saying that what God promised to do, He's done. God keeps His promises. And the greatest of all promise was the Lord Jesus in His coming. His death and resurrection. So, this morning, the hope of the Gospel, it is not new. It is not inexplicable. It is not unbelievable. It is God keeping His Word. Jesus is the promised hope realized. And we have a future hope that awaits us, right? We still have things that we are looking forward to. Uh, the resurrection of the body, particularly as some of us age quicker than others, we are really hoping for the resurrection to come quickly. We are looking forward to being in heaven. Perhaps some of us are going through real hardships where we're just longing for the day when we're in Christ's presence. We have a future hope. But you also have a hope that is realized in Jesus Christ. 
You see, the future hope is grounded on the present hope, if I can put it that way. The future hope of what awaits us is grounded on the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the fact that Jesus died and rose again has to come as a fulfillment of the Scriptures. You see, all of the Scriptures that God has given and laid down come to this fulfillment. And and because we see what God laid down, and then we see what God has done, we look to the future and we say, God will continue to keep His promises. As surely as the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, as the first fruits of the resurrection, so those who have faith in Jesus Christ will rise again from the dead and be in the presence of the Lord. Your hope is grounded. We sing the hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Jesus is your hope. Second this morning, Jesus is a light to the sinner. And this is, um, we can say, very real to Paul. We use the word light in in sort of a a spiritual dimension, and it's a good way to talk. God has opened the eyes of our hearts, shined light into our hearts, all biblical language. But for Paul, while all of that biblical language is true, it's like a whole other level because he is walking down the road to Damascus, and boom, the light shines down into his, his eyes. There's a physical reality that goes along with the spiritual reality. And I actually think that part of the reason that Paul uses all the language he does about light shining into our hearts in 2 Corinthians 4 and and other places is because he's so been shaped by his his transformation. Now, I I don't want to minimize for for a second the the working and the power of the Holy Spirit and inspiring Paul to write what he wrote, but, but you can see how the Holy Spirit uses what actually happened to Paul to describe in a spiritual way what happens to us. So Paul gives his testimony again in verses 12 through 15. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus in connection to persecuting the church. I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw the way a light from I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Uh, I said, who are you, O Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We have a, a saying in English, you know, bang your head against the wall. Uh, you don't, you know, it's something we do when we're, we're frustrated. It's something we do when we're getting nowhere. It's the same idea here. Paul's getting nowhere in persecuting the church. He's resisting the truth. He's resisting God. He's, he's kicking the immovable rock, if you will. Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? One of the reasons I read, I had Sean read Isaiah 6 this morning for our um, scripture reading is it's one of those places in, in scripture where someone sees God and his glory. 
You have Moses seeing God's glory. You have Isaiah seeing God's glory. You have Ezekiel chapter 1 with that really bizarre throne uh, imagery there. But in effect, Ezekiel sees heaven open up into heaven, the glory of God, God on the throne. That's what Paul sees here. Paul doesn't understand first that he's seeing Jesus. He understands first that he's seeing God. Lord, Lord, who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why did Paul believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Why did Paul believe that that Jesus is truly God? Because like Isaiah, he saw the glory of God radiating out of heaven. He saw the glory of God on the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that's actually how he describes our conversion. When you come to saving faith, you see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You're putting your faith and trust in Him because you know who He is. Paul is then called to be a witness, but rise up and stand upon your feet, almost exactly like like the incidences in Isaiah, except without the the touching of the lips. Of course, we recognize that that Jesus is forgiving Paul's sin here in these events. But then, just as Isaiah is called to go out and be a minister, Paul is called to go out and be a witness. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles, whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul can come along later and he can say with all integrity before Agrippa, I'm only doing what God has told me to do. He effectively says that in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I have not been, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Kind of saying, do you want me to go out and disobey God? No, obviously not. I'm just doing what God told me. So it says he declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region to all the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Why have the Jews done this? Because Paul went out with the message of the gospel. He's calling them to repent. And he's saying, when you repent, do deeds in keeping with your repentance. Meaning, your repentance is not just something you say with your lips, but something then that will, will manifest itself in your life. The repentant person will bear fruit. Jesus tells us that even in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave Paul the call. He says in verse 17, Jesus says, I am sending you to open their eyes. Paul is sent because of the commission of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm sending the light. And how does he do that? He uses Paul. 
How does Jesus send the light today? He uses pastors. He uses missionaries. He uses Sunday school teachers. He uses Christians to send the light, to take it to other people. There are people in your life right now that you are the only person in this room who is a Christian that knows them. Maybe they know other Christians, but the only Christian in this room that knows them. And that means you can reach them in a way that I can't, or the person sitting next to you can't, or the person on the other side of the room can't. And maybe God is sending you to be a light that they really are in in spiritual darkness. And you can say something to them. It doesn't have to be that you say everything all in, in one conversation, kind of information overload. But maybe you're already a friend with them and you've built a relationship and you can just say a few things about how you were in church on Sunday. And it made you, you think. And just even say, my, my pastor was, you know, just blame it on me. My, my pastor was, was talking about sharing the gospel with other people. Have I ever told you about Jesus? Maybe you ask them more directly. Have you ever thought about Jesus? Or what do you, what do you think of him? Maybe you say to them, you know I go to church every week. But did I ever tell you why it's so important to me? Christ sends us just as much as he sends Paul. What's fascinating here in this passage is there's an echo uh, from another scripture, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring prisoners from the dungeon, from the first prison to, uh, yeah, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So Isaiah 42 is actually a messianic promise. Jesus will be the light to the nations. Jesus will be given. It's, it's these servant songs uh, in Isaiah, the most famous one, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. But this is one in, in the same genre, in the same group of themes and servant songs. Uh, we see it fulfilled. Luke 2.32, Simeon's in the temple. He sees Jesus and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation for the Gentiles, for the glory to your people. Paul preaching in, in our chapter, verse 23, he says he's teaching that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Christ would be the one proclaiming the light. But in verses 17 and 18, the means by which Christ proclaims the light is he sends his servants out to proclaim the light. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness into light. In a, in a real sense, obviously, Paul isn't the light, right? He's not saying, hey, guys, believe in me, you can be saved. He's saying, believe in Jesus and you can be saved. But there is also a sense where because Paul is doing Jesus' mission... 
Paul is part of the way that Psalm 42 is fulfilled. Paul is sent to open the eyes of the blind through the power of Jesus. Think about that for a minute. We are so connected in our union to Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ is sent as the light. And when God's children, when Jesus' people, when Jesus' body goes out, and preaches the gospel, faithful, true words and the message of Jesus, we are part of the way that Christ sends the light. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are God's ambassadors as if God was making His appeal through us. When you proclaim the gospel... As you are faithful to the Scriptures, as you are bringing God's Word, it is as if God Himself is making that appeal. That's why we stick to the Word of God. That's why we take Bible verses with us. That's why it's not going to be cute stories that save people or fancy introductions that you give to leading the gospel or really cool balloon animals that you can make at the beginning of your presentation that will save them. It's the Word of God. Because the Word of God through the Holy Spirit uses the power of God. And we become nothing more than a tool or a conduit for God sending the light. I want you to notice in this passage that Several ways the believer is described or it's alluded to that the believer is united to Christ. First, you have this, why are you persecuting me? Paul never persecuted Jesus. But to persecute the body of Christ was to persecute the head of the body. Christ is described as the first to rise from the dead. And I, I think this is an allusion to other places where Christ is called the firstborn from the dead. Or that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Particularly for the believer, Jesus is the first of the resurrection in that His resurrection guarantees that the believer's resurrection will take place. Firstborn assumes that there will be others that come and receive this inheritance. And firstborn is, is the, the, the first in the family that, that gets the inheritance. And it assumes that as Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1.18, that others will rise from the dead just like Jesus to eternal life and have an heir in the kingdom. First fruits is harvest language. That it means you, you go out in your field and you bring in the little bit that comes in first and then the rest of the harvest will come in. The church, the body of Christ being resurrected is the rest of the harvest. And then just notice, as I've already mentioned, Christ is proclaiming the light as God's people proclaim the light. Verse 23 of our passage, He would proclaim both to our people and to the Gentiles. He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's speaking of Christ. And then in verse 17 and 18, Christ saying to Paul, whom I am sending you to open their eyes. 
lastly this morning, notice how this message of the gospel leads Paul to plead with sinners. The word of God is the power of God. The word of the gospel is the power of God. And it brings sinners to saving faith. When we share the gospel, God through the Holy Spirit shines a spiritual light down into people's hearts as he wills and he opens that heart up. It's, it's a blinding light, if you will, just like Paul experienced, but it's a, it's a light into the heart and they see, they're hearing these words and it's finally, I understand, I want these things, I want to believe and so we respond. But it's the power of God. And sometimes people think that if it's the power of God that saves, I really shouldn't do anything. On the one hand, sometimes people will say, well, if you don't do anything, no one will get saved. And they they take all of the power of salvation, almost taking it out of the hands of Christ and putting it into the hands of man. And then they give you a guilt trip and they say, If you don't do it, think about all those people that will be in hell and it will be your fault. That's wrong. We shouldn't think that way. We should be faithful, but we shouldn't lay those kinds of guilt trips. But on the other hand, sometimes what people think, and it's wrong to think this way too, is they think, well, if God saves sinners, if God opens their heart to see the gospel, why does he need me? I don't have to say anything. I'll just pray and let God do the work. But God uses us to be the light. God makes us to be the light. And so sometimes we think that we don't have to actually be zealous in evangelism. Notice in this passage how Paul pleads with the sinners. I wish that you would believe these things. I want you to believe these things. Even throwing the ball into Agrippa's court. You know, you believe the prophets, don't you? I, I know that you do. Which, which would lead then, you know, if Agrippa says, well, yeah, okay, I believe the prophets, then Paul can simply follow it to its logical conclusion. Well, what am I saying that's not in line with the prophets? You know what they say. Don't you believe God can fulfill His Word? You see how He's passionate about about seeing Agrippa come to faith. He's he's persuasive in his talking. He's winsome in the way that he interacts. And then when Agrippa says, oh, Paul, you're just trying to get me saved. Paul says, yeah, yeah, I am. I really want you to be saved. Sometimes people will get really angry with you when you share the gospel. But sometimes, even those who will get angry, even those like Festus here who think you're crazy for believing it, they will at least say, but you know what? In a weird way, he cares. You know the magician's pen and teller? Um, which one's the one that never talks? T- uh, pen, right? Uh, so Teller gets, no. Somebody help me out here. Which one's the one that never talks? Teller doesn't talk. Yeah, the guy that tells doesn't talk. Okay, so Penn has this video out on YouTube, and it went viral a year or two ago. Uh, and he's a staunch atheist, very 
very firm in his atheism. But he shares a story on, on, um, on YouTube about a guy who after a show came up and just just gave him a Bible and said, look, I know you don't believe, something like, you know, look, I know you don't believe these things, whatever, but, you know, I just wanted you to have this. It's a gift from you to me. Now, now Penn thinks that Christians are just out to lunch. It's, it's, you shouldn't believe these things. It's dumb. But he appreciated that gift, and he talks about it in this YouTube video, and he, he basically, it's kind of a condemnation to Christians that don't witness, because he basically says, if you really believe these things, why wouldn't you tell someone? He uses the example of if, if a bus was coming to run someone over, wouldn't you jump out and yell at them and push them out of the way? Now, he's not saying we should get violent, but, but he's saying what he basically says is, I don't believe what this guy believes, but I marvel that he was so true to his commitments that even though he doesn't know me, he cared enough about me to look like a fool to risk looking like a fool and give me a Bible. And this is a hardened, atheist, unbeliever who, when confronted with the gospel, rejects it. Sometimes we're more afraid of what people will think. And sometimes that fear is actually very unwarranted. Because if we can come with love and and show that we're sharing the gospel with love they might very well reject the gospel. But hopefully they'll see that we love them. And even if they don't see it, we know why we're doing it. We're doing it with love. And so we shouldn't be afraid to plead with people to accept this hope. Paul even pleading, I wish that all of you here were like me, except without these chains. Obviously, he means, I wish you were all Christians like me. Do we plead with unbelievers? We know Jesus is the hope. We know Jesus is the light. He's called us to be the light. We need to take the light. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning from your word, that you would encourage us to be the light that you have sent, to take the truth, to strike up conversations with people, to seek to bring the gospel to bear. Maybe even, Lord, maybe it's not all in one conversation, but over a series. Lord, I pray that your spirit would go before us and prepare hearts, that you would give us the courage, that we would not have timidity in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.